Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Jonathan, and I'm one of the pastors at our Norton campus just up the road here. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning. It's great to be uh, talking about the Old Testament with you this morning. We're going to continue in uh, this series of, of, of trying to get our uh, grasp, get our heads around what is this Old Testament. And uh, it was interesting, as I was doing some reading, um, I was thinking about like what, it, what it's like to read through the Old Testament. I looked over on my bookshelf and I, and I was reminded of, of this book that uh, several years ago, about five years ago, in fact, um, my wife Jennifer and I were, were at Books A Million and, and I was looking for a book to read. I, I enjoy history. I enjoy learning things that I maybe didn't learn about in school. And I came across this book uh, called The Plantagenets. Uh, the Warrior Kings and Queens Who Made England. I thought, cool, that sounds like a fun read. There's a, there's a sword on the cover, you can't beat that. And uh, I thought this, would be, uh, this will be a fun book to kind of read through, get to know some English history and this and that. And uh, that was about five years ago. And uh, that's how far I got. <laughs> I'm, I'm still working on it. And the reason why is as I started reading through it, it's like there are so many names, <laughs> so many names, uh, English names, French names, French names I can't pronounce, people, places, things that, that I can't pronounce, and, and it's just hard to keep track. I mean, I should have known there's like 10 maps in the front and, and lists of, of kings, Henry I and the fifth and the eighth and, and, and all, these, uh, all these Henrys. And it, just trying to figure out, you know, the, the culture, the customs, uh, uh, just the strange things that are, that are in English history. And I thought to myself, you know what? I think a lot of us reading through the first 39 books of the Old Testament, when we start reading through that, we can feel the same way. There's all these names and people and places I've never been, I've never heard of. People that, names I, I can't pronounce and, and customs and a culture that I'm unfamiliar with. And, it, and really it can become just very overwhelming. Well, my goal uh, this morning is, is to maybe help you get a, a, an understanding, a better understanding of a, of a small section of the Old Testament that will get you excited that's like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to dive into this thing. Because I, um, I think that's why this series is so important. That hopefully as we go through this flyover of the Old Testament, it will give us a, a better context and understanding of what we're reading. And though the Old Testament tells us the story of the history of Israel, it's so much greater than that because it's God's story. And God's story is essential to understanding my own story. It's a story of promise, of hope, of, of restoration and rescue and redemption. As Pastor Jeff has been summarizing it, the unfolding, history, the, the unfolding story of God lovingly calling the most precious part of his creation, us, to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. With the promise of transformation and eternal life to those that say yes to him and condemnation and punishment to those that reject him. 
As I, as I think about these things, I, I'm reminded of a story in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. It's after the resurrection of Jesus and, and there's two men who are traveling down this road and, and Jesus meets them and, and, and they don't recognize him. They're kept from recognizing that it's Jesus in their midst. And so they begin to tell Jesus everything that's happened in Jerusalem. And they, they tell him about uh, Jesus' own death and resurrection, and, but they're a little confused, and so we read, and I, and I love this. I, I wish I could have heard what they heard that day. Because right there, with Jesus in their midst, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. That's amazing to me. Imagine being in the presence of Jesus and Jesus teaching you, doing a little understanding of the Old Testament on the, way, <laughs> on the way on this road and having him explain, hey, by the way, this points to Jesus. And, and when you read this, this points to me as well. And he revealed to them how all the Old Testament stories and events and prophecies and songs and psalms ultimately point to Jesus. Here's the point. When we read the Old Testament or anything in the Bible for that matter, we need to, to listen to God and look for Jesus. Listen to God and look for Jesus. He's there. We're going to be looking at some of these aha moments this morning in, in the first part of the Old Testament historical books. But the Old Testament gives us this backstory of, of the New Testament. It points us to, to God's plan for mankind. It reveals his character. It helps us understand our own need for restoration and rescue. It gives me insight into my own heart. And so far, Jeff has given us a, a 50,000 foot view of the whole Old Testament. Last week, he gave a summary of the five, first five books of the Bible, the the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I, I would encourage you, if you haven't been here or you missed one of these preceding uh, conversations, encourage you, go online, go online, get caught up. Uh, get into a life group as, as we go through the E4 studies of the survey of the Old Testament. It will help to, to be able to read through and, and talk about it together with, with others. As a reminder of where we've been, through, through Abraham and his descendants, God is building a nation called Israel. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob, who has 12 sons from whom the 12 tribes of Israel come from. They're enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years until God calls out a man named Moses to, to rescue them and, and to take them out of Egypt to the land that God had promised to Abraham. God gives them specific instructions, laws to govern themselves, also to, to set themselves apart from the other nations around them, to point them continually to their need for God. On the way to the promised land, they, they, enter, they encounter a few hiccups, and, and due to a disobedience, a lack of trust in God, they end up wandering around in this wilderness area for 40 years. 
And finally, at the end of, of Deuteronomy, after these 40 years of wandering, they're in a position uh, to cross into the land that God has promised Father Abraham. But before that can happen, Moses, their leader, dies. So this is where we enter into this historical section of the Old Testament. The historical section of the Old Testament runs from Joshua to the book of Esther. It covers this huge swath of history. And taken together, these, these books tell the story of, of how ancient Israel was formed, their, their rise to prominence, their collapse into moral and physical defeat, and then again start the process of restoration. So I want to dive in as we take at the first five books this morning, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and which takes us from the Israelites on the verge of entering into the land of Canaan, the promised land, to the establishing of a monarchy. So my goal today is to give a brief overview. What's, what's going on in these books? What's, what's happening? Who are some of the main characters? I want to give a, a few themes in each one of these books. I also want to point out a, a couple aha moments that, that point to Jesus. And then I, I also want us to wrestle with something that we might struggle with as we read through some of these books. But the first book is Joshua, summed in, in 10 words or less, that Israelites capture and settle the promised land of Canaan. The events of the book of Joshua span, uh, cover about 25 years of history. They start soon after the death of, of Moses, and the book begins with the nation of Israel poised to cross the Jordan River. And across the Jordan is a city named Jericho, and as Jericho was a city, would be, would be the first one that they would have to, to take over to encounter in the land of Canaan. So they're ready, they're on the verge to, to go into the land that God has promised so many, so many years before to, to Abraham. And it records the details of numerous military campaigns to defeat the inhabitants of the land. It goes into this lengthy explanation of the division of the land, which is eh, honestly a little like creating a map without pictures. But for the Israelites, it's extremely important because it's a fulfillment of God's promise. In Genesis 12, we read that Abram, later known as Abraham, meaning father of many nations, not just Israel, but many nations, that he traveled through the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. What's well, interesting that the book of Joshua is kind of a book of a story of incongruities. On, on one hand, God gave the land he promised to the nation. On the other hand, the people failed to possess the land completely, allowing some of the inhabitants to remain. And so what we see is God fulfills his side of the promise, but the Israelites fail to finish the job. And as a result, these Canaanite peoples had, had this damaging influence on Israel. The Canaanites were this group of, of ancient people who lived on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean. They were, they were wicked people. They were enemies of Israel. 
In fact, they make up all the, all the ites that, that we read about in the Old Testament that fight against the Israelites, the, the, the Hivites and Girgashites and Jebusites and Amorites and Hittites, Perizzites, Moabites. These were all Gentiles. They were all, all non-Jewish people. I want to I take a second here just to look at an aha, an aha moment that points to Jesus. It's found in the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua sends a couple of men across the river into the land to do some reconnaissance of, of Jericho, the first city they would have to defeat. And they end up going to Jericho and they go to a home of a pagan prostitute named Rahab who ends up hiding them and, and helping them escape. And, and they promise that, with the promise that no harm would come to her or her family. Well, here's the interesting thing about Rahab. Though she's part of the pagan and wicked people of Canaan, she understands something about God's greatness. She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land and a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. You see, she recognizes something about Israel's God, something that's like, this, this is true. He's the true God. And so the story of Rahab, the prostitute, and her faith in the living God of the Israelites gives her a place of honor for her faith. And we read in the New Testament book of Hebrews in the, what's often called the chapter of faith, chapter 11, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. You see, Rahab's story is a story of God's grace. It's a story of salvation by faith. And we take away from this, God has a missionary heart. His plan of redemption has always included all the peoples, the nations of the earth. And what's cool is, in addition, we find her name in Jesus' family tree later on in Matthew. Uh, there's just so much in this book, but one more aha moment to share before we go on. Uh, the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5, we, we read of this uh, fascinating encounter that Joshua has with this, this warrior, this supernatural warrior. And I think about, it's the night before the battle, before they're the cross, and, and start thinking about... about um, uh, overtaking Jericho and, and I imagine Joshua's probably chomping at the bit. He's ready to cross the Jordan. He's ready to do what, what God has promised them. Everything's ready. But God knows Joshua's not quite ready because there was a heart adjustment that Joshua still needed to make. And Joshua 5.13 tells us that Joshua is near, was near Jericho, probably scouting out the situation, thinking about how's this all going to go down. And it says, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? And so imagine this picture, he's kind of wandering around outside, kind of surveying the situation. All of a sudden, he runs into an armed warrior with his uh, sword drawn. He's like, you for us or against us? And the warrior's response is fascinating. He says, neither. 
He replied, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You see, Joshua had had been asking the wrong question. The question wasn't whose side was God on, but on whose side was Joshua on? And Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? You see, Joshua begins to get, he's like, yeah, I, I asked the wrong question. You're a commander, you're my Lord, you're my commander, I'm your servant. And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I want you to just think about what just happened. You know, these are real people and and real events that happen and and Joshua runs into the commander of the Lord and the commander of the Lord points him in the right direction. It's a a cool story in and of itself, but in addition, most theologians consider this, now this is your your $1,000 word today, a, a Christophany. Now, a Christophany is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And you're still like, what? (laughs) But here's what we need to understand. Remember, as God, Jesus exists from eternity past. He took on flesh as a baby boy at the incarnation that we call Christmas, that God was skin on. But he's always existed as God. And so here we see him in the Old Testament, in in Joshua, we see him appear before Joshua as a commander of the army of the Lord. And it's like, well, how do you know it wasn't just an angel? Well, you see, an angel wouldn't have accepted Joshua's worship. But God did. And so here he finds himself in the face of Jesus. We have an appearance of Jesus Christ right here in Joshua. See, Joshua had wanted God to join what he was doing, but God reminds him, Joshua, it's not about you. So the book of Joshua ends on a positive note. God's promises were being fulfilled before the people's eyes, but Joshua knew that the temptations and time would take their toll on the people's faithfulness to God. And so he challenges them in this closing section. And he gets before the people, he calls them all together, and he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away all your idols. Throw away all the gods of the pagans. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves whom you will serve, whether the gods of the pagans, your ancestors, the gods of the Amorites, the the Canaanites, in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You see, Joshua's story here illustrates what it looks like to live in obedience to God and the consequences when when we fail to live that way. And as Israel under Joshua stands as a memorial to obedience the tragedy of the rest of Israel's history is that no generation matches this one and it brings us to the book of Judges and in Judges the the summary is uh, Israel goes through cycles of sin and suffering and salvation you see the book of Judges gets its name from the number of leaders called Judges whom God raised up to deliver Israel from their oppressors 
Now, these weren't judges like we know them with gavels and, and black gowns and courtrooms. These were regional political military leaders. They were tribal chieftains. But it's interesting that the contrast between Joshua and judges is striking because Israel goes from the thrill of, of victory to the agony of defeat. They go from freedom to oppression, from advancement to regression. And Judges bridges the gap from the time of Joshua to the time of, <clears throat> to the, time of the prophet Samuel and the beginning of a monarchy, about 300-year span. It records the history of cycles of, of sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and peace. And we, whoop, we see it again and again that they're, they're serving the Lord and, and then yeah, they start to get complacent and they start to wander and they fall into sin. And then the nations around them enslave them and they're like, oh man, we're, we're, you know, we've sinned and we've gone away from the Lord and they cry out to God and, and God delivers them with a judge and, and they're delivered and they begin serving the Lord again. But then they grow complacent and, and they fall into sin and they, we see this cycle happen again and again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. At least seven times we see this cycle. And as I think about this, I think it's a cycle that <laughs> it's not really too uncommon in my own life sometimes. You know, we experience God's blessing, things are going well, and then I start to feel entitled, and I start to feel like, man, I can do this on my own. Man, things are going great. And then we begin to slowly drift from God until we find ourselves in a place where it's like, whoa, what happened? And then we cry out to God, and God forgives, and in his grace, he restores us, and, and we start the cycle all over again. You see, it's a picture of our, our, of our own hearts. And one key verse tells the story of, of judges and says, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They did what they, what they thought was right in their own eyes. And in today's terms, man, if it makes me happy, it's got to be okay. But God gets our attention. And reading Judges, comes with a warning it goes from pg the nc-17 pretty quickly and it's filled with just disturbing violence and tragedy it tells a tale of israel's corruption and, and they're bent to, to turn from god and it begins by by pointing out the failures to drive out all of the canaanites and it leads to the corruption of the judges which then leads to the corruption of the whole nation and it reveals the consequences of sin and failing to trust god you see, God will not allow sin to go unpunished, but it also reminds us that when we turn from sin and follow God, God is gracious and forgiving. God uses flawed people. Even flawed people like the judge Samson. <laughs> Samson gets the most coverage in the book of Judges. However, his story is, is, is pretty disappointing. He disregards the law. He intermarries with, the pagan, with the, the pagan Canaanites, the Philistines. He uses his gifts and power to enact personal vengeance. He never does deliver Israel. In fact, his life is summarized in this way. He killed many more when he died than while he lived. 
And it's a sad commentary on his life, but Samson is a picture of Israel. You see, they both had a special calling, but deserted it to pursue their own desires. The whole narrative is sobering commentary on man's condition and need for grace. Judges teaches how easy it is to get off track when our lives center around, our, center around ourselves instead of God. Well, here we won't be looking at an aha moment, but a huh <laughs> moment. Huh? You see, as you read through Judges, you're going to encounter all of this violence. We come across something that, that, that trips a lot of people up because there's commands to exterminate uh, entire peoples and assassinate leaders and stories of deception and murder. The violence is indisputable. The, the question become, becomes whether it's justifiable and approved by God. How, how do we understand all the violence? How do we understand like wiping out a people? Well, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot that goes into this, but I, I just want to give a couple things that might help us understand this a little bit better. As we enter into these, these difficult chapters of the Bible, and the first thing is we need to trust God's character. In Genesis 18, it poses the question, will not the judge, will not God, the judge of all the earth, do right? You see, because God is all-knowing, he knew what would happen if the Canaanites were permitted to, permitted to stay and live with the people of Israel. And as it turns out, the very worst did take place and Israel's downward plunge is severe. Because, you see, the Canaanites were known for this, their moral corruption, bestiality, incest, sexual deviance. They performed child sacrifices to their gods, dropping infants and, and toddlers from cliffs, throwing them into rivers to drown, throwing them into sacri sacrificial fires, to uh, burning them alive. This was a corrupt, immoral, violent people, and God is wanting to protect his people from their wickedness. You see, had the Israelites followed God's instruction, the nation could have avoided centuries of judgment and pain. In fact, the failure to deal with the Canaanites early on in, in history almost leads to the complete annihilation of the Jews in the story of Esther. You see, faith in God's justice and character tempers our limited understanding of God's judgment. And so we need to trust God's character, but we also need to apply God's patience. In Genesis 15, it states in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Here's what, here's what all that means. God started a slow 400-year countdown for the Amorites, the Canaanites, to either turn to him or remove themselves from the land. And while Israel was in captivity, in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, God is patient with them. In fact, there's another 40-year extension as Israel wanders through, through the wilderness. We know the Canaanites knew of God's power. They had heard of God's power. They had heard what God had done in Egypt, how he had parted the sea and the people had crossed on dry land. 
But rather than leave, some of the Canaanites began sending raiding parties to pick off the the weak, the sick, and the elderly at the end of Israel's line. They brutally murdered any stragglers. And so God didn't order the extermination of these people to be cruel, but to present even greater evil from occurring in the future. God gave them hundreds of years to change, and some, like Rahab, put their faith in the living God of Israel and changed and was rescued. This process of total destruction was was designed to judge sin and to cleanse idolatry from the land so Israel wouldn't be corrupted. But I think another perspective is important is that is, you know, we must live by faith. We don't know what would have happened in in other circumstances. God does. We don't know the motives of others. God does. We don't know the spiritual battle that was taking place that God, but God sees it all. Do I have faith to trust, to trust him to do what's right? You see, we can trust God even when we don't understand his ways. Remember, God looks at things from a different perspective, from an eternal perspective. And then we think about his character, that he's just and righteous and holy and loving and merciful and gracious. And, And sometimes how all of these attributes work together can be a mystery to us. But that doesn't mean that he's not who the Bible proclaims him to be. In stark contrast to the struggles and violence and darkness we find in Judges then, we we come to this ray of light, a a ray of hope when we come to the story of Ruth. In fact, the story of Ruth has been called the most beautiful short story ever written. And it, it serves as an interesting break from Judges. Ruth tells the touching story of a foreign woman, a, a Moabite, a non-Jew, who is welcomed not only into Israelite society, but into the lineage, the family tree of Jesus himself. The summary of, of the book is loyal daughter-in-law, Ruth, pictures God's faithfulness, love, and care. This short book, four chapters, is written in the historical context of the latter days of the judges when things were at their worst. In fact, some believe it was once attached to the book of Judges. And at the beginning of the story, we're introduced to Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law. And from the very first verse, we learn that she's lost everything. Naomi's lost everything, her home, her husband, her sons, her livelihood. She's poor, widowed, and without hope. However, through Ruth's loyalty to her, and later Boaz's faithfulness to his family, the story ends not only with hope for their family, but hope for a nation, and ultimately hope for the world. You see, since Ruth was a Moabite, a a non-Jew, again, we see God's desire and initiative to bring the Gentile world, all nations, into the family of God. And it's a beautiful picture. The book of Ruth showed the Israelites the the blessing that obedience could bring. It showed them the, the loving and faithful nature of God. But it's interesting to note that as you read through through Ruth, that God's hardly mentioned. But 
We see the movement of God. We see his fingerprints all over the book. This wasn't a coincidence. She was there when he was there and and all these things and you see God orchestrating and, and creating this picture and you see his plan throughout this book. And so we have this aha moment pointing to Jesus. There's, um, there's so much in here about God's loyal covenantal love, themes of redemption, of rescue. But again, going back to Genesis 12 and the, and the promise that God uh, made to Abraham and all the families would be blessed through him. It says, and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now we have, now God has included individuals like Rahab and Ruth in order to bring one of Israel's greatest kings into the world. See, because now as we look at the end of Ruth, Naomi is cared for. She, her hope has been restored and she's found holding her grandson at the end of the story. And out of this grandson would, would come the line of David. And then we come to the book of Matthew and we see the, the family tree of Jesus and we see Boaz and, and Ruth from Bethlehem. Uh, that leads to David's greater son, born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem. You see, what I want to see here and what's so exciting as we look through the Old Testament is is, is there's something far greater going on here than what we just read on the surface. We see a current of God's grace. We see a current of of God's movement all throughout these stories. When I read Ruth, it reminds me that God is always working God is always working. Even when life seems hopeless and painful, God often redeems the pain in our lives to to continually point us to himself. It brings us to 1 Samuel. Originally, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel were placed together as one book. It gets its name from the prophet Samuel, and the summary is this, Israel's 12 tribes unite under a king. You see, the, the events of 1 Samuel took place of a period of about 110 years, stretching from the closing days of the judges when Samuel was born through the death of Israel's first king. The book of 1 Samuel is, is divided into two sections. With the first section, we have the life of Samuel, chapters 1 through 12. In the second section, we have the life of Saul, their first king, in 13 through 31. The book begins with this miraculous birth of Samuel in answer to his childless mother's earnest prayers. Samuel goes and lives in the temple, and God singles him out as a prophet, as a mouthpiece for him. And Samuel calls Israel to repentance and then leads, vic- leads them into victory over their enemies. But the people aren't satisfied. The people, it's like, man, this is good, but we want to be like the people around us. We want to be, you know, we want to be like all the cool kids. We want to be like the other nations. And they begin to desire a king. And, and Samuel doesn't like it. The Lord tells them, God tells them, you know, it's not your leadership that they're rejecting. It's mine. 
After the warning the people of, uh, <clears throat> after warning the people of what having a king would mean, Samuel anoints Israel's first king, a man named Saul. Now Saul is tall, he has the bearing of a king, but he lacks a heart for God. And after enjoying some initial successes, he makes a series of missteps and, and disobedience and foolishness, and God comes to him and, and says, but now your kingdom shall not endure. It stops with you, Saul. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And as a result, God chooses another to take Saul's place, a man after his own heart. And as Samuel is looking for this new king, the next king, God gives him a little guidance. And he says, he says to Samuel, do not consider appearance or height, for I have rejected them. The, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And so Samuel anoints a young man, a shepherd boy named David, who's a descendant of Rahab and Ruth, to become king of Israel. And the rest of the book describes the struggles between the jealous and demented Saul and godly David. And, and through all of it, David maintains his integrity and his heart for God because what God was looking for in his people, he found in David, someone with a heart for him, someone with integrity. In fact, in Psalm 78, it summarizes David's life in this way. I, I, love these, I love these verses. He chose David, his servant, took him, out, took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd, the leader of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. <clears throat> Near the end of the book, Samuel has died and, and Saul's just kind of a lost man. They have a big battle and he loses three sons in the battle and, and, and commits suicide. You see, Samuel, or Saul's story reminds us of the danger of, of pride and jealousy and, and walking away from God. But now the focus is solely on David and we come to 2 Samuel. Summary, in, in 10 words or less, David becomes Israel's king but with major flaws. <laughs> the book of 2 Samuel is divided into David's triumphs and David's troubles with the last part of the book serving as an appendix, a, a summary of his reign. And the book begins with David receiving news of Saul, the death of Saul and his sons. And, and David becomes king and he moves the nation's capital to Jerusalem. And, and he makes plans to build God a house, a, a temple. And God says, oh, David, no thank you. But I will build you a house, David. I, in fact, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And so God makes this promise to David in chapter 7. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Well, well, what does all that mean? (laughs) Well, number one, God's promise means unlike Saul, David would have a son to rule after him. Number two, David's son, he would build the temple. Number three, the throne occupied by David's lineage, his family, would be established forever. And fourthly, God would never take his mercy from David's house. And so with this promise, David continues to lead successfully until a moment of moral failure, he falls hard. He lusts for a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. He commits adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. He has her husband murdered. And when Nathan, uh, the prophet who, who replaced Samuel, confronts David with his sin, David confesses and God graciously forgives. However, David continues to suffer the natural consequences of his sin. And as a result, David's life from here out is filled with grief and heartbreak and betrayal. But on a good note, David passes the throne to his son Solomon. He gives him a a charge that sounds very familiar to the words of Moses and Samuel and Joshua. And he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And so David charges Solomon, says, stay faithful to God, son. And then he adds, and and murder my enemies. (laughs) And David reminds us that God uses flawed people. Maybe you feel like God couldn't possibly use you. I encourage you to read through the book of David and and look at his heart and his heart of repentance, his heart for God. Even when he failed, God restored him. And he used David. And he can still use us. David reigns for 40 years as Israel's greatest king. The last aha moment that points to Jesus is found in in Luke's gospel in the New Testament as we listen, the words of an angel appear to Mary to announce Jesus' birth. It says, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendant forever. His kingdom will never end. And so begins the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Jesus is in the line of David, the fulfillment of God's promises. That a king will sit on David's throne and one day make everything right. So as we boil this down, God's covenant, his promise to David here is not only... uh, 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 to not only bless the nation of Israel for centuries, it will bless them again in the future. It blesses us today through the work of David's ultimate royal descendant, Jesus. So we've covered several hundred years of history through five books of the, of the Bible. So what, what, do we, what do we do with all of this? Remember as you read, listen to God and look for Jesus. Listen to God and look for Jesus. 
As we finish up today, I just want to mention a few things to take away from, from as we look at the storyline of these books. And the one is I'm encouraged that God's plan and God's character is greater, is greater than my perception of life events. And that gives me confidence. You see, we've barely touched the surface today, and yet it's so amazing to see how God works as we see the theme of his gracious plan and purpose played out in the midst of wickedness and pain and suffering and despair. There's this consistent current of grace that flows through all these stories. God is always working. You see, God's still sovereign. He's still in control in the 21st century. He will accomplish his purpose. You see, I have a choice. I can live in faith like Joshua and Ruth, trusting him even when things seem dark and uncertain and hopeless. I can, I can lean into God and trust what I know to be true about who he is, his character, and his faithfulness. Or I can put my trust in myself like Samson, like Saul, and do what's right in my own lives and live with the consequences of a life without hope, a life without God. I'm encouraged that God uses flawed people. That gives me hope. How many people did we look at today who were flawed people? I love that the the Bible doesn't cover these things up. I love that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He used hurting people, imperfect people, flawed people who are willing to live in faith. He used a general who wasn't completely sure of his ability to fill his predecessor's shoes. He used a a pagan prostitute to put her faith, who put her faith in the living God. He used a foreigner who showed loyalty to her grieving mother-in-law. He used a heartbroken, childless woman who was willing to pray for a miracle. A shepherd boy with a big heart and a big faith and a big God. A man of God who sinned greatly but repented before God and God used him. And all of this shows me a God who knows our hearts and is willing to accept us where we are to take us to where we need to be. Finally, I'm encouraged that God is faithful to his promises. And that gives me courage for today. It gives me boldness for tomorrow. You see, remembering the past teaches us countless lessons about how to live today. The Israelites forgot. They didn't remember the miraculous events that brought them to their land, the the covenant, the promise that united them to their God. But God is the ultimate promise keeper. And as faithful and present as he was with Israel, so he is with us. You see, I never have to wonder if God is going to do what he says he will do. You see, I can live with confidence in my God who says, as he said, to Joshua be strong and courageous don't be afraid don't be discouraged for the Lord the Lord God will be with you wherever you go let's pray